for the March 17, 2023 edition of Weekly Signals, Weekly Woke Review, a personal recollection of the last 168 hours of woke history, broadcasting on Transit Driver Appreciation Day from the University of California at Irvine on KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And, as always, because he's too woke for words, <laughs> Mahler, the fake news dog. <laughs> Woo! There he is. Good boy. That's his, yeah, battle cry from, from Mahler there. Today we'll be talking about monkey labor, death by astroturf, Van Gogh in advertising, penis depiction ratios, flipping the bird, and many other exciting topics. But first... What did you do on the Ides of March this uh, year, Mike? Took my dad to breakfast. Really? You mm-hmm. guys were celebrating? Oh, yeah. Breakfast? Well, we, if Ides of March, forget about it. Yeah. We're on the floor by noon, I'm just telling you, right? You drink a lot on oh, the Ides. Oh, it's, it's crazy. Whew. What about you, Nathan? I was just staring at the waning crescent moon. Mm, okay. I, I usually do that on holidays. Mm-hmm. Mm. Stare at the moon. Do you bay at the moon or you just stare at it? No, that would be our dog bays. Oh, okay. our I dog was baying. You could bay at the I moon. Was, I, I could. Sure. I didn't join him this time. <laughs> From the London Review of Books, the Ides of March is the 74th day in the Roman calendar, corresponding to our Gregorian calendars, March 15th. Back there in Roman times, mm-hmm. it was marked by several religious observances and was a deadline for settling debts in Rome. Mm. Originally, the Ides was supposed to be determined by the full moon. In the earliest calendar, the Ides of March would have been the first full moon of the new year. In 44 BC, the Ides of March became notorious as the date of the assassination of Julius Caesar, which made the Ides of March a turning point in Roman history. According to Plutarch, Caesar, speaking in Greek instead of his native Latin, said to Brutus as he was being Stabbed. Stabbed. Kesu technon. That was the original, according to Plutarch, which uh, Shakespeare turned back into Latin, as you know, when he hmm. wrote Julius Caesar, uh, to say, a tu brute. A tu brute. It literally means, you too, child. Hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. you too? You too are stabbing me. Yeah. Yeah, my friend. But what Caesar may have intended by the words isn't clear. Hmm. Because, you know, Caesar says one thing, but then mm. Shakespeare gets it, flips mm. it around. Flips it around. The words Kesu often appear on curse tablets. It could have been a Yeah, F-U. curse tablets. He yeah. got a little uh, yeah. piece of metal. Uh-huh. And they used to hammer out curses on them. Uh-huh. And then they'd bury them in the ground or tack them up on trees, do a little bit of magic with them. Okay. Curse tablets. Uh, this uh, Kesu, on the, which appears on curse tablets... Suggests that Caesar's last words were not the emotional parting declaration of a betrayed man to one he had treated like a son, but more along the lines of, see you in hell, punk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all this time, et tu brute? Yeah. Maybe not. But it made for a hell of a play. Well, I think it's it would have been picked up a bit if he'd have said, see you in hell, punk. See you in hell, yeah. Well, he's been, yeah. I wonder if there's been any, I, I'm not aware of it, but I wonder if there has been any uh, Julius Caesars. Done with that Done with, with that see you in hell, punk. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, E2 Brite, you know, it's a little bit too Shakespearean. It is. Yeah. By the way, I happened to see Hamlet on on TCM yesterday. Uh-huh. My dad loves it, so I was sitting there watching it with him. Quite a well done older film. To, to, Who was in it? Uh, Sir Lawrence. Oh, Lee, that, that one. Yeah. Did you use a meal kit when you were watching uh, uh, oh, uh, um, Hamlet? Hamlet. Yeah. No, I did not. What is a mule kit? A mule kit is one of those pre-portioned, uh, partially prepared food things they bring to you, you know? Mm-hmm. You get a meal kit or you buy them. Mm-hmm. You can subscribe to them. Yeah. You can get like maybe uh, sesame soy beef bowls with jasmine rice. Mm. Remember that one? That sounds... Curry chicken soup and red cabbage. Sounds intriguing. That's uh, Mahler's favorite. Oh. The, uh... <laughs> From The Guardian, the meal kit provider HelloFresh said it will no longer sell coconut milk sourced from Thailand after campaigning by PETA, uh, people animal for the, rights group. People for the ethical treatment of yeah. animals. Accused coconut farms in Thailand of using monkey labor. Oh. Yeah. The Thai government has rejected PETA's claims of widespread abuse, saying the traditional practice of using monkeys to harvest coconuts is almost non-existent in industry, which due to its scale instead depends on human labor and machinery, not monkey labor. It's probably the case that monkey labor camps are based on small farms catering to local consumption. Okay. And rather than farms that produce coconuts on a massive scale for export because they can't organize that many monkeys. Monkeys are hard to organize. Yeah. I, yeah. If you had to put out, say, 10,000 coconuts today, mm-hmm. what do you do? Yeah, how do you how do you tell your monkeys that they have to increase their labor? You know, yeah, you they're going to be messing around. Yeah, they're being monkeys. I wonder if they ever had a nope moment there. A yeah. what? A nope moment. Oh, you know, where, they, where one uh, of the monkeys kind of just kind of lost it because he's tired of labor. Yeah, and just took out the uh, his boss. Bit his face off. <laughs> If you'd like to chug a glass of coconut milk, may I recommend a donation to KUCI instead? Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial free, free form, free speech, radio, KUCI, 88.9 FM. Ooh. Excitement today. From New Scientist. Few spiders in the United States have a more fearsome reputation than black widows. But throughout the South, black widows, the arachnids with the red hourglass on their bellies, are engaged in a lethal competition with the brown widow, a relative from abroad, and the black widows are losing. This isn't a case of one species outcompeting another for food or habitat. Biologists found that young brown widow spiders seek out and kill black widows Hmm. and they're aggressive about it exceedingly shy insect hunters black widows like to live in crawl spaces wood piles and sheds this fondness for human habitation does occasionally lead to people getting bit 1004 cases in 2021 but deaths are extremely rare among the people Mm -hmm. brown widows are less venomous and aren't at all shy The biologists found that brown widows were 6.6 times as likely to kill black widows than other species. So they're going specifically to kill their relatives. 
In the southern and western United States, the outlook for urban living black widows isn't good, but the species does have a fallback. Black widows like deserts and woodlands as much as suburbs, Okay. while brown widows prefer urban and suburban spaces. The ongoing contest might end with black widows being cast out of crawl spaces and attics in favor of the wilderness where brown widows won't follow. Okay. So pretty soon, you might be going out to Joshua Tree. Yeah, to get bit by a black widow. Well, they, they generally don't bite you. Yeah, you they don't. You have to really get pretty aggressive with a black widow or completely surprise him and right. you being surprised by him too. Yeah. But other than that, if you see a black widow... There really isn't too much danger of them pouncing on you. No, that's often the case with animals that we fear. They're not that interested in engaging with you, and yet we're afraid of them for a lot of good reasons, but uh, they tend not to want to do that generally. Yeah. From Reuters News Service, the geology of Brazil's volcanic Trindade Island has fascinated scientists for years, but the discovery of rocks made from plastic debris in this remote turtle refuge is sparking alarm. Melted plastic has become intertwined with rocks on the island, located 800 miles southeast of Brazil's nose. You got that in your mind now? Mm-hmm. You got Brazil's nose, the nose, 800 miles down and to the right. Mm-hmm. This is new and terrifying at the same time because pollution has reached geology said Fernanda Avalar Santos, a geologist at the Federal University of Parana. Santos and her team ran chemical tests to find out what kind of plastics are in rocks called plastoglomerates. Oh, my God. Because they are made of a mixture of sedimentary granules and other debris held together by plastic. The pollution comes from fishing nets, which is very common debris on Trindade Island's beaches, Santos said. The nets are dragged by the marine currents and accumulate on the beach. When the temperature rises, this plastic melts and becomes embedded with the beach's natural material. So we got geologic plastics now. Yeah. Amazing. From the New York Times. For the first time, the federal government will require utilities to remove from drinking water two toxic chemicals found in everything from waterproof clothing to dental floss and even toilet paper. Michael S. Reagan, the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, said the government intends to require near-zero levels of perfluoroalkyl and polyfluoroalkyl substances, part of the class of chemicals known as PFAS. We've talked about PFAS for... They're the forever. Forever. Chemicals. Yeah. Exposure to the chemicals has been linked to cancer, liver damage, asthma, and fertility and thyroid problems. The synthetic chemicals are so ubiquitous in modern life that nearly all Americans, including newborn babies, carry PFAS in their bloodstream. They're called forever chemicals because they do not break down and persist in the environment. The chemicals seep deep into soil and water. As many as 200 million Americans are exposed to PFAS in their tap water. Last year, the Environmental Protection Agency found PFAS could cause harm at levels much lower than previously understood. So they're a lot worse. And that almost no level of exposure was safe. It advised that drinking water contained no more than 0.004 parts per trillion of perfluoroactanoic acid and 
two parts per trillion of perfluorooctane sulfonic acid. Previously, the agency had advised that drinking water contained more than 70 parts per trillion of the chemicals. That means uh, right now we're drinking about 18 to 35 times more PFAS than we at most should be exposed to. The EPA will accept public comments on the proposed regulation for 60 days before it will take effect and become the legal limit. <laughs> now, you know you're going to die anyway. Yeah. And you're already too old for your own good. Yeah, I know so, that. Uh, you know. Yeah. So, drink up, Shriners. I think so. Yeah. Did you ever play on artificial turf? No, not really. I mean, huh. if it was, it was a very limited exposure to artificial turf. No, I you can't think lot, of. You play a lot of baseball. Yeah, but I never. We played on dirt and grass fields. I mean, that's it. I can't remember ever playing on artificial turf. Uh-huh. Even all those years in softball, there's. I can't think of anywhere that has a park. No, I have no. Yeah. No, but not even like a practice. You well, maybe some a walk. Yeah, somewhere along the line, did I walk out on artificial turf and kick a ball yeah. around? Yeah, probably. Yeah. How not, about putt putt? Oh, now putt putt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, miniature golf. That's yeah. artificial. Yeah, turf. You it play is artificial. Golf on miniature. Yeah. On, uh, well, turf. yeah, probably less than twenty times in my life, but yeah, probably. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll play I wonder if those people with putt putt realized how they were purveyors of evil. Yes, know? that's right. Yeah, they're horrible people. Horrible. From the Philadelphia Inquirer, a report on the possible link between a rare brain cancer that killed six professional U.S. baseball players and toxic chemicals in artificial turf is raising a new round of questions over whether synthetic sports fields pose a health threat to people who use them. The six athletes played most of their career with the Philadelphia Phillies. I think that's the reason. That they're dying of cancer. It's, the, it's that they played for the Phillies. Phillies. But, you the, know, stress, I know. the stress and strain of playing for the Phillies. Yeah. A team that for decades competed on artificial turf at Veterans Stadium. All artificial turf is made with toxic PFAS compounds, and some types are still produced with recycled tires yeah. that can contain heavy metals, benzene, volatile organic compounds, and other carcinogens. Now, I ran track on two years on a, a tire track. A tire-based artificial track. That was black. It was black. Yeah, it was that You were obvious. playing on t- <laughs> I was just playing on tires. I was running on tires. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. That was at, uh, <laughs> at the time called San Fernando Valley State College. Okay. And that now it's called Cal State University Northridge. Yeah. And they were very proud of it. They had just laid this big black track. Yeah. It and was of, a thing, yeah. And, of course, in the summers... Yeah. That track got very, very hot. And also and, smelly, and, right? Yeah, it smelled a little bit. Okay. I remember just laying on it sometimes. Oh, yeah. and, and I had, uh, you have track shoes generally, yeah. so you have very thin soles. Yeah. And on a hot summer day, especially when you had a meet, you felt like you had an advantage because you were used to the soles of your feet burning. Oh, my God. Where the competition, you know, they had no idea. <laughs> Well, did you have little cleats in your shoes that dug oh, yeah. in? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow. We got a, a little bit shorter because the nature of the... You didn't want him to dig in too far. Into the concrete that was below. <laughs> yeah, which is probably a reason that my <laughs> knees fell apart and I was about 20 or so. Yeah. Oh, okay. A growing number of U.S. municipalities and states have banned or proposed banning the uh, artificial turf. The federal government estimates that 12,000 synthetic turf fields exist in the U.S. right now, and at least 1,200 more are installed annually. Oh, my God. I don't know why they keep installing these things. 
Well, this is relatively new information, I assume. Not or is really. something they knew? That they were, they were well, PFAS we, and all sorts of these. Well, are, you know, when you put them in, your, in, in the front of your house, yeah. you know, if you're making a lawn and you, you decide you're going to do something good for the drought, don't put in one of these artificial no, turf no. lawns. It's, it's horrible for the ground. It's horrible for the soil. It doesn't allow rain to seep down into right, it. And right. if it does, it's usually mixed with the plastics. Toxic. Yeah. By the way, there was a time, especially in professional football, mm-hmm. where they put artificial turf on a lot of fields because, first of all, a lot of indoor stadiums like Astrodome and others, and also outdoor because it rained and snowed and all that, so they wanted a consistent playing field. Yeah. And they used to call it, the professional athletes, even I think in baseball, they called it fuzzy cement Ooh. because it was so thin yeah. and I'm sure so toxic. My God, this is yeah. a crazy story. Only five professional baseball teams still use synthetic fields. That would be the Arizona Diamondbacks, the Miami Marlins, Tampa Bay Rays, Texas Rangers, and Toronto Blue Jays. The product is also increasingly used on playgrounds. So you got all these kids playing around and rolling on this uh, PFAS, or as alternatives to lawns in drought plague regions that we were talking about Mm -hmm. at least nine municipalities in connecticut california and massachusetts including the city of boston have begun limiting the use of synthetic fields you're listening to kuci 88.9 fm irvine california visit us on the web at kuci.org on Facebook at facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9, on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at KUCIFM. From, what is it? <laughs> From National Geographic, a 10 million pound blob of seaweed is heading for the tip of Florida. Say that again. A 10 million pound blob of seaweed is heading for the tip of Florida. Okay. Why? Why is that happening, Nathan? Well, I wanted to, you know, it was, it was tired of living in New York. I wanted to retire. Okay. Yeah. The Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt, a goopy mass of leafy floating seaweed stretching across 5,000 miles. That's what we're talking about mm-hmm. here. Historically, sargassum has been a natural part of the ocean ecosystem, but in the past decade, it has blossomed into a nuisance that can cause serious damage and smell like rotten eggs. It has a gas that's even bad for your lungs. It's just not a pleasant thing. Unlike other types of seaweed, like kelp that's anchored to the shallow ocean floor, sargassum adapted to life on the open sea and lives solely in floating patches. When that excess sargassum piles up on beaches, it's at best bad for the tourist business. Mm-hmm. It supports some wildlife. Do you have a description it of it? Is that brown kind of looking? It's seaweed? brown looking, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. We, we get them here in California. Yeah, yeah. You get them all over. But this mm-hmm. is uh, quite a large one. Yes. 5,000 miles large. After a large sargassum bloom in 2018... Occupancy rates at a Riviera Maya hotels along the Yucatan Peninsula dropped. I look at that as a plus. In fact, maybe we want more of this sargassum floating around. <laughs> this year, that same shoreline is bracing for three feet of sargassum along their coastline. That's a lot of sargassum. That is a lot of sargassum. That's like waist high. 
And honestly, my encounter with sargassum has been that you can get entangled in it pretty easily. And it Uh and it's not fun to extricate yourself from it. No, even as you're getting out of the water, it can take quite a bit of effort to kind of break three, break free of the of the hold of this stuff. I have Mm. experienced this. The thick, tangled mass can also smother coral reefs, mangroves, crabs, clams and Mike Caspar. (laughs) Currently, there's no easy fix for getting rid of sargassum, and removal can cost tens of millions of dollars. And they don't know exactly what the cause of this is, but one wonders if it's the warming of the ocean well, due to our climate change. Pretty good, pretty good guess. Could we just maybe mix in some astroturf with it? Just sprinkle a little on top. Just a little on top. <laughs> From the Washington Post, in a narrow 20 to 17 vote, the Michigan Senate approved a bill to repeal the state's anti-union right-to-work laws. It's a major victory for organized labor, setting the state up to become one of the first to overturn anti-union right-to-work laws, which allow workers to opt out of union membership and dues payments. The bill will now be sent back to the state's House for final approval. The House voted to pass a similar bill last week, so it looks like it should pass this one, too. Mm. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer has said she will sign the bill. There are now anti-union right-to-work laws in 27 U.S. states, mostly in the South and Midwest. Yep. The red states. The red states. The the laws have been credited with the dramatic decline in union membership and growing income equality in the U.S. over the past several decades as some workers choose to save money in the short term by not paying for union dues when it's optional, even though a body of research has shown that union members tend to earn higher wages than their non-union counterparts in similar roles. Under Republican control of state government, Michigan passed its right-to-work law in 2012. If Whitmer signs the bill into law, Michigan will be the first state to repeal a right-to-work law in nearly six decades. From Common Dreams... A new pro-forced pregnancy proposal in the South Carolina General Assembly that would make people who obtain abortion care eligible for the death penalty receive the support of 21 state Republican members. There are 124 members in the Assembly, 88 Republicans, so that's almost a quarter of the Republicans in this Assembly in South Carolina would consider frying my grandmother in an electric chair. She had an abortion. Proposed by State Representative Rob Harris, the South Carolina Prenatal Equal Protection Act of 2023 would amend the state's criminal code to give a zygote, or fertilized egg, equal protection under the homicide laws of the state, meaning obtaining an abortion could be punishable by the death penalty. I wonder if they can drive cars. Well, you know, they're not messing around. These people mean what they say. They are going to put people, put women in jail and in danger of being executed for a legal right to health care. Well, and it also saves lives, too. Abortion saves lives. Yes, it does. The bill does not include an exception for people whose pregnancies result from rape or incest. So there's no exception there. Yeah. In other words, you could be raped by your father, get an abortion, and be put to death. Right. And also, let's not forget all of the doctors in these states that are running away from patients that they would have taken care of before for fear that they will end up in jail as well. 
The bill also has language vague enough to suggest that some people who suffer miscarriages could also be sentenced to death. Yeah. I'm, wa I'm waiting for the images of women in orange jumpsuit in the docket on trial for capital offense. I'm waiting for that and how that's going to land around the country. From Smithsonian Magazine, in the early 1960s, Andy Warhol created his Campbell's Soup Cans and Coca-Cola Bottle Series. You remember those. Mm -hmm. Now, more than 50 years later, Coca-Cola is capitalizing on Andy. A new global ad campaign titled Masterpiece features Warhol's 1962 Coca-Cola alongside other paintings, including Edward Munch's The Scream, Vincent van Gogh's Bedroom in Arles, Johann Vermeer's Girl with a Pearl Earring, and Utagawa Hiroshi's Grumbridge and Setting Sun. Using famous artworks in advertising is now trending, Mike. Mm. Yeah. But unlike the Andy Warhol Foundation, other artists don't like it. In November, the British street artist Banksy called out the clothing brand Guess for helping themselves to his artwork for a new collection without his consent. Meanwhile, American artist Keith Haring's work has been popping up seemingly everywhere from Adidas sneakers to a Pandora jewelry campaign. There are plenty of people who will shudder at the sight of the girl with a pink earring popping the cap off a bottle of Coke, writes Creative Review magazine's Megan Williams, although it's more common to see famous artworks in these settings nowadays. Well, I'm just kind of looking forward to more art mm -hmm. being included in ads. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to seeing The Last Supper as a manscaping ad. <laughs> I think that'd be good. Because <laughs> there's, you know, nothing but guys there's, around this yeah, table. What else are they going to do except <laughs> shave their crotch? <laughs> From the PBS NewsHour, a Virginia judge ruled frozen human embryos can legally be considered property or chattel, basing his decision in part on a 19th century law governing the treatment of slaves. That would be the key <clears throat> phrase there. Mm -hmm. The preliminary opinion by Fairfax County Circuit Court Judge Richard Gardner delivered regarding a long-running dispute between a divorced husband and wife fighting over two frozen embryos that remain in storage is being criticized by some for wrongly and unnecessarily delving into a time in Virginia history when slavery was legal. I think it should be criticized by all. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what do I know? <laughs> the law at the heart of the case governs how to divide goods and chattels. The judge originally ruled that because embryos could not be bought or sold, they couldn't be considered chattel. Therefore, the wife had no recourse under that law to claim custody of them. Then Gardner conducted a deep dive into the history of the goods and chattel and found that before the Civil War, goods and chattels also applied to slaves. The judge then researched old rulings that governed custody disputes involving slaves and said he found parallels that forced him to reconsider whether the law should apply to embryos. As there is no prohibition on the sale of human embryos, they may be valued and sold and thus may be considered goods or chattel, he wrote. Solomon Ashby, president of the Old Dominion Bar Association, a professional organization made up of primarily black lawyers, called Gardner's ruling troubling. I think he was understating yeah, that exactly. whole idea. Yeah. As judges often do. Yeah. Ashby said he was baffled, but Gardner felt a need to delve into slavery to answer a question about embryos. 
I would like to think that the bench and the bar would be seeking more modern precedent. Hopefully the jurisprudence will advance in the Commonwealth of Virginia such that we will no longer see slave codes cited to justify legal rulings. Amen. And That's by the way, says. this was the seat of the Confederacy, Virginia, yeah. Richmond. That's where the capital of the traitorous Confederacy was headquartered. Yep. The judge's decision is not final since he has not yet ruled on other arguments in the case involving the divorced couple fighting over the two frozen embryos that remain in storage. You know, I mean, there is so much of this kind of reaction to civil rights, equal rights, and we're really seeing it play out. And through the people that have been put on the bench by Trump, through the Federalist Society, these are people who want to go back to the what they call originalist interpretation of, of the Constitution, which also did not ban slavery in the original Constitution. Black people and slaves were considered three-fifths people. There's a lot of things that they seem to be going back to, to refer to in modern judicial decisions. And it is a really, really troubling trend. Speaking of reproduction, from Forbes magazine, ideal male beauty in classical sculpture generally depicts penises of average or less than average size. However, according to new scholarship, the size of the penis as represented in paintings depicting nude males has gradually grown over the past seven centuries and particularly after the 20th century. The research set out to probe seismic shifts in depicted penis size by evaluating paintings of male nudes from the 15th and 21st centuries. It took some effort to ascertain the exact lengths for comparison. Penile length to ear length, that would be P-T-E-L, or penile length to nose length, uh, that would be P-T-N-L, were calculated to standardize the measurements using professional image analysis software. <laughs> they used a common term, penis depiction ratio, that would be P-D-R, <laughs> to refer to both ratios. You see, you don't know if they're just... You yeah, know, if, if there's a, a perspective yeah. thing going on here, so they're measuring the ear. Yeah, measuring and, the nose. Yeah. yeah. The it's, PDR, that would be the penis depiction ratio, differed significantly between paintings created in different centuries. But paintings from the 21st demonstrated significantly higher PDRs than paintings from previous centuries. Well, I'm thinking it could just mean we have enormous Schwanstuckers. <laughs> That that could be what it is. Yeah, they actually it could have be grown. That. They have actually have evolved. Yeah, evolved yes. or devolved, <laughs> devolved, depending on how you look at it. Um, I think some of this has to do with the proliferation of pornography, because the people that you see in porn, Roman porn was pretty darn good. Was it? Yeah. Okay, well, well, um, I'm just saying in terms of the the availability and the perspective of said appendage. Maybe in somehow influence. Maybe it's but just wishful thinking. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe as we've gone into the 21st century, we've. we've yeah, our to... aspirations have grown, if, yes. if you will. Yeah, yes. okay. From the Columbus Dispatch, an Ohio man is in the hospital after his pet zebra nearly bit his arm off. <laughs> oh, no. It's kind of a sad story here. Yeah. When the injured man, Ronald Clifton, told the 9 11 operator that he'd been attacked by a zebra, the dispatcher replied, You got attacked by what? Yeah. After deputies arrived, an aggressive male zebra 
who appeared to be protecting six female zebras near him, approached the victim's family and emergency personnel. This guy, Ronald Clinton, was burning brush. Okay. He's got a couple of pet zebras, you know, all these other zebras around. Yeah. And they're out there with all this burning brush going on. So they're a little anxious. Yeah. What you're saying. So after deputies arrived, an aggressive male zebra who appeared to be protecting six female zebras near him approached the victim's family and emergency personnel. Deputies tried to scare him away, but as he kept approaching, one deputy shopped and killed him. Oh, no. I had to make a decision, this deputy said. I put a slug right between its eyes. Oh, no. Clifton is in stable condition and will not lose his arm. Uh, the zebra, however. Yeah. You got to feel like if you're burning a bunch of brush. Yeah. Next to a male, and it sounds like almost his harem out there. Yeah. He's going to get a little bit agitated. So there was no other way. Truly, I mean, who knows? We weren't there, but my goodness. Well, that's probably all the guy had. Yeah. He's called out into a strange situation, but it makes me sad. Yeah. And finally, from the Montreal Gazette, a Canadian judge, Judge Dennis Galaatsitis, ruled that giving someone the finger is protected under the country's Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It's not a crime to give someone the finger, he wrote. Flipping the bird is a God-given charter enshrined right that belongs to every red-blooded Canadian. You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.